You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, a local body of believers in Quarryville, PA. To learn more about Oak Hill, visit oakhillfellowship.com. Now grab a Bible and a notebook and prepare to be spiritually enriched by God's Word. So as I was practicing yesterday, uh, the intro that I came up with, I was thinking that I would use today, and I'm going to use, it occurred to me that this is sort of a political season and we might be sick of surveys and being asked questions about our opinion on things. But at the risk of that, I'm going to go ahead and ask some questions of you this morning and ask for some audience participation in order to kick off my sermon this morning. So uh, don't sit on your hands. Don't be bashful. Be honest with yourselves and honest with God and get your hands up high. I've got three different questions for you to consider. How many of you have found yourself being less than a good friend to someone else? Letting them down, I didn't even have to finish the question. (laughs) Letting them down and betraying their trust in some way. I appreciate the honesty. How many of you have felt abandoned by a friend or a loved one? How about those of you that feel they have let God down a time or two? I know that I have both betrayed others and been betrayed. I've made a fool of myself, especially to those that I love the most. I also confess that I have not been there at times when a brother or sister in Christ needed me to be there. I've kind of abandoned them then. I also have to say that when I, that I want to love and follow Jesus Christ, but I seem to have lose focus from time to time and lack discipline I need to be in prayer and to be on guard against temptation. Today's sermon title is The Good News of His Sorrow. (laughs) Kind of oxymoronic if you ask me. How can it be good and sorrow in the same sentence? Well, you'll see in today's text that Christ knows our pain. He knows our suffering in our sorrow. He knows betrayal, denial, and abandonment by His closest of friends. And yet, He is obedient to do the Father's will, to be the sacrificial lamb. He was in agony as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he did what God called him to do. In our passage today, Jesus and his disciples planned to celebrate the Passover together. As good Jews, they would have celebrated this feast every year throughout their whole lives. They knew the original Passover happened on the eve of God, rescuing Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt. They knew that God had instructed their Hebrew ancestors to choose an unblemished lamb for each household to sacrifice and to paint the lamb's blood on their doorpost for the Lord to pass over their household when executing the tenth plague on the Egyptians. They knew all the other instructions God had given them to celebrate God's blessing and provision. To the apostles, this could have just been another Passover. Just another Passover feast, like a long line of Passover feasts they've celebrated every year. Little did they know that for the previous three years, they had walked with the ultimate unblemished lamb to be sacrificed for them in whose blood would pay for their sins forever. This would be a Passover like no other they had ever celebrated. As they prepared for this special meal, 
Jesus was making his own final preparations to equip his apostles for the next stage of ministry. And he prepared himself to be the perfect and eternal Passover lamb. What I hope you see in today's scripture is that Jesus Christ felt betrayal. He felt alone and abandoned and denied by his closest of friends. And during what we see happening to Christ, we will also see how the disciples were also sorrowful and how they were confused and didn't understand what was going on. This section of scripture could be fairly familiar to many. Normally, you might hear it on Monday, Thursday during Holy Week. Well, whether you read it many times or you were reading it for the first time today, I hope that the Holy Spirit works mightily in our hearts to reveal truth to us. That we may grow in our love for Christ and see how Christ suffered the same things that we suffer, but was obedient to do the will of God the Father. Today's big idea is go to Jesus in your sorrow because he was faithful to do God's will in his own sorrow. Put your finger in Mark 14. Whether you have one of the paper-copied, old-fashioned ones like mine, or you have that digital thing in your hand, you're going to go to Mark 14. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we would love for you to have one in front of you while we're doing the sermon this morning. There should be some in seat pockets or next to you on the floor. I also see some back there on the shelf if you need one. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home with you so that you can have God's Word with you at all times. We're going to start and do this in sections today, so we've got 30 verses to get through this morning. We're going to break them into sections. The first section is going to be verse 12 through verse 19. Read with me from Mark 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is it I? In today's section of Scripture in Mark 14, I see four ways in which Jesus fulfills his role as Lord and Savior. The first one I see is Jesus is sovereign when we are sorrowful and confused. It is time to have the annual Passover celebration, and Jesus' disciples are wondering where they are going to celebrate the Passover together. Jesus gives clear instructions to two, to, to two disciples, go into Jerusalem, into the city, which is required location for any Jew to celebrate the Passover. A man carrying a water jar should stand out, but that is typically a job for a woman, so they ought to be able to find him easily. 
Follow that man to a home that he enters and then inquire of the master of the house where the guest room is and where they may eat the Passover together. The room was to be furnished and ready. There the two disciples could prepare the Passover. The scene should remind us of the other time in Mark that Jesus sends two disciples to find something as well. They were looking for a colt back in Mark 11. We can assume one of two things. Either Christ had pre-planned for this guest room or he had pre-knew of this in his sovereignty. Either way, the disciples stepped out in faith and did what Jesus asked of them. It appears that it was done in secrecy as both Jesus and the disciples knew that they were wanted people by both the chief priests and the scribes. And when evening came, Jesus and the remaining disciples arrived at the previously disclosed location. And then, before you knew it, Jesus makes a statement, one that catches the disciples off guard. It's kind of like showing up for Christmas dinner, and before you even get a chance to sit down to get ready to have a delicious meal, someone at the table makes an announcement that leaves you sitting there with your mouth open. What did he just say? The other Gospels also give an account of this scene. The scene descriptions are slightly different, but they all include Jesus' statement. While reclining at the Passover table and eating with the very men Christ chose to be his disciples, the very men he chose, he says, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Here we are at the 11th hour, and Jesus is very matter-of-fact about what he's about to happen. He doesn't mix his words. He doesn't tell a parable. He just lays it out there. First of all, can you imagine what it must have felt like for Jesus to get those words out? Finally, he called the game and said, this is what's about to happen. There's no turning back. His walk to the cross is imminent as it has been, but now we're in the final hour. How do the disciples respond? Confused, a little in shock, wondering who. As we know, Judas is the traitor. That was mentioned in last week's sermon and previous verses in Mark 14. And although this isn't mentioned here in Mark, Judas is still at the table, according to the account in Matthew, at least for a little bit longer. I like the way Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, describes the disciples' response. Check this out. They began to be sorrowful. They were saddened by this news. But catch this. They didn't question the factual nature of the statement Jesus made. In fact, they responded in a way that would lead us to believe that they could find themselves capable of being traitors. They each said to Jesus, one by one, is it I? They didn't respond in a flesh-driven way. They didn't say, no, not me. I would never do something like that, Jesus. How could that be? For the record, their response is the right one in my perspective. It's one that I wish I would have more often in my life. Is it I? Understanding the depravity of our own hearts is the beginning of understanding our need for Christ. During our weakest moments, when we are grieving and hurting and broken, Christ is standing firm in his sovereignty. 
and hasn't moved away from us, not even an inch. Read with me now as we continue in Mark 13, in verses 20 to 25. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping the bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he gave given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. In this section, I see the second way in which Jesus fulfills the role of his, as our Lord and Savior. Jesus fulfills his covenant even when we betray. Jesus fulfills his covenant even when we betray. Imagine sharing a dish of food together, say nachos. And the very person that is taking some nachos off the plate at the same time as you are is the very person who is about to betray you. And to make matters worse, this person is someone that you invited into your close-knit circle of friends. Jesus invited Judas to be his disciple. Judas spends roughly three years learning from Jesus, seeing firsthand the miracles Jesus performs, hearing the many sermons and teachings. Judas was even the one trusted to be the money manager for the Jesus and for his disciples. And now, in the 11th hour, Judas decides to follow the desires of Satan, the desires that he had placed on his heart. At this point, I want to acknowledge that at this very moment, that is the moment where God's sovereignty and Judas's individual choice come together. God's plan for Jesus to be sacrificial lamb was not going to be stopped. But Judas, Judas's decision to betray Christ was one that he made and that one that God used to accomplish God's plan. In verse 21, we see the term son of man. This term appears in both Old Testament and New Testament scripture. Look with me at Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. It should be on the screen for you. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel is giving a description or an interpretation of a dream that he had. In it, you see, he uses the term son of man in verse 13. In this context, son of man refers to Jesus Christ in the ancient of days as God. We also see in verse 14 what authority is given to Jesus Christ. Son of man is used frequently in the New Testament. And it was Jesus' favorite name for himself to imply both his messianic mission and his full humanity. 
If we combine the term Son of Man that we see in Daniel, and we just reviewed, and we look at some select verses from Isaiah 53, we can tie the term Son of Man with the words that Jesus spoke as it is written, because it appears to be a prophecy. Look with me in Isaiah. We're going to read some select verses, uh, verse 3 through 6 in Isaiah 53 first. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then in verses 10 and 11 from Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. In short, in short verse 21 of Mark 14 summarizes that Jesus Christ is the prophesied sacrificial lamb and what has been written of him will come to pass. But woe to the man whom the Son of Man is betrayed. The Greek word that makes up the word woe is defined as a primary exclamation of grief. Here again, there are consequences for Judas's choice to betray Christ. He cannot blame God for using this sin in his life. But at the same time, God is sovereign, and his plans for redemptive history will not change. We now get into verses 22 through 25, which lays out the ordinance of communion that we are going to celebrate later today. Keep in mind that the disciples are expecting Passover dialogue from Jesus. But what they get is something completely different. While they were eating, apparently before the main part of the meal, but after Judas had left, Jesus took bread, unleavened bread, gave thanks, broke it to distribute it, and gave it to them saying, take it, this is my body. Jesus spoke of literal things, the bread, wine, his physical body, and blood. But the relationship between them was expressed figuratively. The verb is means represents. Jesus was physically present as he spoke these words. So the disciples did not literally eat his body or drink his blood. Similarly, after the meal, Jesus took the cup containing red wine mixed with water, gave thanks, and offered it to them. And they all drank from it. Jesus explained the meaning of the cup. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Hmm. Poured out for many. 
a reference to his sacrificial death for mankind, just as sacrificial blood ratified the old Mosaic covenant at Sinai as seen in Exodus 24. So Jesus' blood shed at Golgotha, inaugurating the new covenant. This promises forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God through the indwelling spirit to those who come to God by faith in Jesus. It is important to note here that the word covenant used in verse 24 refers not to an agreement between two equal parties, but rather to an arrangement established by one party, in this case, God. The other party, us, cannot alter it. We can only accept it or reject it. This, is new, this new blood covenant is God's new arrangement in dealing with sinful people based on Christ's death. Christ's sacrificial death is permanent, unlike previous blood covenants that were temporary in nature due to sinful man. Jesus says this, that this new covenant is poured out for many. Thank you, Jesus. Hebrews 8, 6, and 7 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. This Passover experience was unlike any that Jesus or his disciples had experienced in their lives to date. Jesus continues in verse 25 by saying, Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus seldom spoke of his death without looking beyond it, using solemn introductory words like, I tell you the truth. He vowed he would not drink again of the fruit of the vine. In this festive way, until that day, in the future, he will drink it anew. He will enjoy renewed table fellowship with his followers in a new existence in the future kingdom of God. The promise of God through Jesus is rock solid. There is nothing you or I can do or say to change the gift that is offered to us. The gift of salvation the gift of life, the gift of hope. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, we can only understand love through this filter. This is why we say you are loved at the end of each worship service here at Oak Hill Fellowship. Not because of something you or I have done, but because of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. An unshakable covenant that Jesus has made, no matter how we act or respond. I don't know about you, but this gift drives me to my knees and causes me to acknowledge my desperate need for Christ in my life. He alone is worthy of our praise. I hope you are seeing that you can go to Jesus in your sorrow because he was faithful to do God's will in his own sorrow. Jesus is sovereign when we are sorrowful and confused. And Jesus fulfills his covenant even when we betray him. Now continue reading with me 
So Mark 14 and verses 26 through 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. In this section of Scripture from Mark 14, I see the third way that Jesus fulfills his role as our Lord and Savior. Jesus shepherds when we are scattered. Verse 26 initially seemed very strange to me. It is a transitional verse to us, taking us from one scene to another. But I think it is there for another reason. It gave me pause, caused me to stop. It was a tradition at the end of the Passover meal that they would sing. It suggested that psalms like 115 to 118 would have been used at the end of Passover celebration. I took the time to read them and would encourage you to do the same later today. When you do, think of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he is heading for the cross. Jesus and his disciples were worshiping God as they sung to close out the Passover celebration. A Passover unlike any other. One that heralded good news. Remember this as we sing our final song together today. We have much to be thankful for in a God and Savior that deserves our worship. While staying in Jerusalem, which was customary during the Passover, the group moves to the western slopes of the Mount of Olives across the Kindron Valley. And as they were walking along, Jesus tells his disciples that they will all fall away. And then he quotes Zechariah 13.7 by saying, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Fall away, that is translated here, means to take offense to. So literally, that Christ's disciples will make offense at him, take offense at him. They would all fall into sin and abandon Jesus for fear of the same treatment that Jesus was about to receive. So here, I, being God the Father, will strike or put to death the shepherd, Jesus, and the sheep, the disciples, that is, will be scattered in all directions. Jesus immediately countered his desertion prediction with the promise of a post-resurrection reunion. As the risen shepherd, he would precede his flock into Galilee, where they had lived and worked and were called and commissioned by Jesus. They were to follow the risen Lord who would continue to lead his people in their future task. This next section is interesting to me as Peter clearly doesn't get it, nor do the other disciples. Their response seems to, in contrast to their earlier response to Jesus when he shared that he was to be betrayed by one of them during the Passover meal. There they said, is it I? Here, Peter emphatically states that he had rather die with Christ than to deny him. 
In fact, all the disciples said they would rather die than deny Jesus. To be honest, this feels more real to me, <laughs> more like my experiences here on earth. How many times do we make commitments to Christ and then don't follow through? We promise to pray for a fellow believer, but we forget to do that. We commit to God via promise to our spouse to read scripture and pray together, but fall out of the good habit that, could that, be, that that could become. We aim to serve each other by serving in a ministry area here at church, but can't seem to squeeze it into our busy schedules. Or maybe you're in school and really wanted to say something to that fellow student that appeared to really be struggling, but you lost your nerve or felt embarrassed. Or maybe when you needed some help the most, nobody even thought to call you and check up on you to see how you were doing. We humans are fickle people, and we're prone to let people down. We're also prone to let God down. For the record, clearly, Jesus Christ knows the feeling all too well. It encourages me to know that our Lord and Savior has experienced the pains of this earth that we have experienced. I can't say that Jesus has no idea what I or you are going through. That would be a flat-out lie. And as far as Peter goes, we know the rest of the story. And despite Peter's rejection and denial of Christ, we also know how God used Peter to grow his church. <laughs> Sometimes the lessons God puts us through are the ones that teach us the most. Failure can be the best teacher. What a loving, caring, forgiving an understanding Savior we have. This kind of love and grace just blows me away because it's not something we experience from humans on earth. I have to be able to see the words, otherwise I'm in trouble. So far, we have seen three different ways in which Jesus fulfills his role as our Lord and Savior. They are, Jesus is sovereign when we are sorrowful and confused. Jesus fulfills his covenant when, even when we betray. Jesus shepherds when we are scattered. And now the fourth is Jesus faithfully endures in obedience when we are distracted. Read with me Mark 14, 32 to 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to greatly just be distressed and troubled. <clears throat> and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found him sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, 
for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus and his disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane, which had become a normal thing to do for them. This wasn't a foreign, a strange place, but rather a place that was familiar as it had been visited many times before. Judas would have also been very familiar with this spot. Gethsemane is translated as olive press, which makes sense as they are still in the Mount of Olives and olive oil was a known commodity of the day. Don't miss the imagery about the pressure that Jesus is about to be under in the area called olive press. Jesus instructs the 11 disciples to sit here while I pray. As they enter the garden, and then he invites Peter, James, and John to come a little further into the garden with him. At this point in the account from the book of Luke, as seen in Luke 22, we see that Jesus tells the disciples to pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus wants his disciples to pray, to call out to God that they wouldn't fall into temptation. Given what Jesus is about to experience, I am blown away that Jesus is still shepherding his disciples. What a picture of his love and care for us. Jesus then states that my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Along with a warning to have his disciples remain and watch, I can't overstate the sheer agony and depth of hurt that Jesus is experiencing as he wrestles with the eternity of all the wrath of God for all of man's sin for all time. Jesus, fully God and fully man, knows of sin, but has never sinned. He has seen the impact of sin on earth, especially in man but has never experienced the consequence of sin in his own life. This is something foreign to his nature, and at this moment he is taking on the reality of what he must do. Jesus laid out on the ground a little way away from Peter, James, and John and called out to God in prayer. He called out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba is a very personal term here, used typically in this period by young Jewish children as they would address their fathers. A grown man would never consider doing this to their father, and they would not pray to God of the universe using this term. Clearly, this is good and right for Jesus to call out to the Father in this way. It reflects the close bond between God the Father and God the Son. At this moment in time, Jesus seems to so want for this cup of wrath to go away, but at the same time feels the weight and agony of what he knows he must do. He acknowledges God's ability to change anything 
while at the same time desiring to do God's will in obedience to the Father to give us an even better picture of the stress and grief that Jesus is under, we can take a look at Luke 22, verses 43 and 44. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, him being Jesus. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Imagine the pressure, the sorrow, grief and agony Christ was experiencing as he accepted the wrath of God for all the sins for all time and all people. God sent an angel and supported him, and still Jesus sweat blood. Apparently that is a real thing. Blood sweating is called hematohydrosis. It may occur in individuals suffering from extreme levels of stress. Around the sweat glands, there are multiple blood vessels in a net form like, which constrict under the pressure of great stress. Here again, we can't understand that kind of stress. I can't imagine what kind of stress that had been. But suffice it to say, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, took on our sin. All sin. For all time. Sin that deserves the wrath of God. I simply can't imagine. And if I'm honest, I would say that I wouldn't want someone to go through this on my behalf. But Jesus did. He did. For each and every one of us. He had to. Or the Bible becomes a story. Fiction. Satan wins. We are all doomed to an eternity filled with pain and suffering, gnashing of teeth and torture. And what to me would even be worse, that we would have no hope. No hope at all. As we continue through the rest of Mark 14, 37 to 42, we see a pattern of Jesus interrupting his praying with concern for his disciples. (laughs) Right here in the midst of all that Jesus is going through, (laughs) Jesus stops, not once, not twice, but three times to check in on how the praying and watching is going. Suffice it to say, it isn't going well. The first time Jesus checks in with Peter, he calls him Simon. (laughs) Jesus tended to do that when Peter was acting like his old self. Mark uses a Greek word here for sleeping that can have a connotation of being indifferent to one's salvation. Luke tells us that the disciples are are sleeping for sorrow. In other words, they are worried about what is going on and they are sad for their close friend. They're emotionally worn out from the stress of the day and are not focused on what Jesus had asked them to do. Jesus knew that they needed to pray. Pray to have God-sized strength against temptation. Temptation that Jesus knew was coming their way. Prayer for God-sized help and God-sized intervention. After three times of Jesus checking in with his disciples, he finally calls the game and says, it is enough. 
The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my traitor is at hand. I'm not sure if Jesus could see Judas coming towards him or what it was that prompted him to make his, this statement. But it is apparent that the issue that caused Jesus' prayer had been settled. The hour was not going to pass from him, and Jesus had resolved to do God's will. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. I want to jump back to verse 38 as we conclude our time together this morning. It reads, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit indeed is willing is not a reference to the Holy Spirit, but to the disciples' human spirits, which inspired to follow Jesus and be faithful. Remember back in verse 31, Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the same. So what happened between verse 31 and verse 38? Well, once again, self-reliance and pride got in their way. Although they were filled with sorrow and emotionally worn out, they didn't pray, they slept. Have you ever laid your head down at night to sleep and said your prayers? And then somewhere during the night, or maybe even the next morning, you realized you never finished praying? Yeah, me too. At the risk of sounding like I am judging the disciples here, I want to observe a couple of things with you. Verse 31 makes it clear that Peter is passionate about wanting to follow Jesus wherever it may take him. But why does Jesus ask Peter and the other disciples three times if they are praying and watching? Yes, Jesus was concerned for them. Out of love, he kept asking them to pray and watch. But did they? Nope. They did not. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Do you agree with this statement? My question for us to consider is this. What prevents us from praying? If I pull out the pain and agony that we see, can see Jesus experiencing in verses 32 to 42, which I'm in no way trying to minimize, what is left for us to observe? Well, what I think I see is that Jesus could see how desperately the disciples needed to rely on the power of God. Jesus knew that temptation was knocking at the door of their hearts. Did the disciples' pride get in their way of prayer? Did they not see how desperately they needed to plug into the power of God? There are so many times in my life that I just go it alone and don't stop and call out to God in prayer. I need you, Lord. I need you. I believe. Help my unbelief. Especially when we are at our weakest. When we are experiencing abandonment and brokenness. And we're hurting. We need to rely on God. Go to Jesus in your sorrow because he was faithful to do God's will in his own sorrow. Don't rely on your own understanding and your own power. You have a Lord and Savior who has experienced pain, agony, betrayal, and abandonment. He knows what you are going through. 
and he has paid the ultimate price for you. Let's call out to him in our pain, in our agony, in our suffering, and in our sorrow. He is able, and you are loved. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.